Let us pray. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in continual godliness, that through your protection it may be free from all adversities and devoutly serve you in good works. To the glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end, to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. A reading from the fourth chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits, keeping it with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, 
And we, we what, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. The Gospel of the Lord. Some of you might remember last week, especially at the 9 o'clock service, I remember specifically uh, our friend, Pastor Christian here, uh, promised that he would not put into the readings a very, very difficult reading, only to leave it in your lap to figure it out on your own. Now, I'm here to tell you today that we're, we're delivering on that promise because Christian isn't preaching. I am. Uh, this week, though, we will be taking a, a very, we're looking at a very lighthearted topic, right? Work. Very lighthearted. And, you know, if there's anything that, that's simple, it's, it's what we do day in and day out. And all kidding aside, it is a timely topic. Because in the last year and a half, the topic of vocation has been seen in a pretty new light. So we're just going gonna, gonna to pray and we'll dig in and uh, join me in prayer. Oh God, your unfailing providence sustains the world we live in, and the life we live. Watch over those, both night and day, who work while others sleep, and grant that we may never forget that our common life depends upon each other's toil. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So there was a movie that came out about 20 years ago. It was 2002. It doesn't feel like that long ago, but it was called About Schmidt. Has anybody seen it? Just curious. Yeah, a couple of you. About Schmidt starred Jack Nicholson, directed by Alexander Payne, and it was about a man, is about a man, who had spent his entire career as an insurance actuary. Files, figuring out how much particular people were to insure. And the story follows him as he retires from his insurance career and moves into post-retirement life. One of the first scenes of the movie is he already is feeling restless with this newfound nothing-to-do-ness, right? So he goes back to the office to talk to his young replacement, asks him, what can I do to help you? And he's just kind of said, nothing. (laughs) Go home. You're fine. And so he goes home, and that would be poignant enough, just being dismissed the way he is. But as he's going home, he goes out onto the street outside his office building. He looks over his shoulder, and he sees... On the sidewalk, the entire contents of his office from all the years he had worked as an insurance actuary put out for the garbage. Perhaps one of the greatest fears of our life is that our work will be in vain. We are in the midst of a series called Living in the Kingdom, and so far we've covered unity, gathering, and learning. And so as I was thinking about today's topic, work, I had a kind of a small crisis on my hands because I had to think, okay, this is a topic I've been thinking about in one way or another for my entire life. How am I going to bring it down to 20 minutes? So I have news for you. It's going to be a 90 minute. No, no, it's good. No. I, so I, but I think that personally for me, the way we approach this, some of it has to do with reorganizing how we think about work. Jean Edward Vieth, a Lutheran writer, frames the discussion around work around the fact that our existence necessitates calling. Being a son, a daughter, a parent, a sibling, a grandparent, these all denote calling. And we all have obligations based on that. So with the inevitability of our callings 
and the fear that we have of our labor being in vain, I couldn't think of a better passage to talk about or to think through a little bit with you than Psalm 90. But before that, a little bit of framing, a little bit more framing. We've all heard it said in our culture, you know, find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Live the dream, find the right fit. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's be clear. In, in theological spheres, we use the fancy term vocation uh, for, what, for thinking through how our work relates to our lives. And this is very telling because the term vocation is a Latin word that means calling. If, I hear, if, if you hear somebody calling you, you don't have to figure out whether or not they're calling you, right? Or what you're supposed to do. You just answer. If I said, Cheryl, Cheryl would say, hi. So I would contend that a cursory glance at scriptures would show that nearly all of the men and women in the scriptures do not choose their vocation. They're called. Let's think through it a bit. A few, few, few famous characters. Joseph is tossed in a pit before he becomes prime minister of Egypt. And I don't think that he really chose that. Uh, Samuel, right? Samuel's mother, Hannah, gave him to the ministry when he was a baby. He didn't ask to do that. And then he's called by God as a young boy. And, of course, Samuel goes on to anoint somebody, right? I don't think Samuel approached David, had a job interview, and said, okay, I've got a proposition for you. You can either be a shepherd or you can be the king. didn't work that way. He anointed him. And perhaps most famously and most poignantly, Mary is not asked, will you bear the Messiah? She just listens to the calling. She hears the calling and obeys. So to me, how we honor work as citizens of God's kingdom is very different than how we view work as citizens of the world. As we approach work as citizens of God's kingdom, it is much important how we view work than what we do for our work. Sometimes the fact that our work is given to us by God is the only thing that redeems it in this frustrating stagnant world that we live in. And the reality is seen here in Psalm 90 as the pains and frustrations of our brief lives are brought to bear. In one, one of the many moving passages in, in a, uh, a small unknown book called Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Frodo is lamenting to Gandalf about his vocation, right? He's been asked to deliver this ring into the fiery mountain And he says to Gandalf, the wizard, I wish it need not have happened in my life, in my time. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. The burden of the... All we have to decide is is what to do with the time that is given us. In this gentle encouragement of Frodo, I think Gandalf gives us a wonderful summary of biblical view of working in God's kingdom. While most of us haven't been called to hurl a ring into a fiery mountain, it is very much a part of our lives to wrestle through, what am I doing here? Is my work in vain? Do I want to have to do this? And I would contend that the psalmist in Psalm 90 is having a Frodo-type moment. Now, you could say because Moses wrote the psalm that Moses is having a Frodo, or Frodo is having a Moses-type moment, more accurately. But the psalmist is Moses. And the psalm begins by establishing human frailty. If we look at verse 1, after establishing the truth of God as being a shelter, the psalmist meditates how far above creation God is. And he predates mountains, verse 2. He brings man back to dust, verse 3. 
thousand years are nothing to him. Verse 4. Verses 5 through 7. Human frailty and sin are brought out. Verses 8 through 9. Those things which are hidden to others are laid bare before God. Verse 10 famously asserts that our short lives are characterized by toil and trouble. Even all these years later, we still live about 70 or 80 years, just like in the song. And verse 11 perhaps makes it even more discouraging by reminding us that we should consider the power of God's anger and his wrath that comes from the fear of him. If this psalm seems depressing to you, you're right. The world is a discouraging place so often. And I think this shows up more, no more poignantly and no more pervasively than in our work. Think about the writer, Moses. Here's a man who spends the first 80 years of his life ping-ponged between being a prince and then being a shepherd in the desert. Then he spends his last 40 years leading a reluctant nation and then is denied entrance into the promised land due to his sin. Wouldn't you write a psalm like this if that was your story? Moses is at once overcome by God's power and greatness, but also honest about his brevity and God's judgment. Moses knows God's judgment well, and the work of his hands must have seemed vain at times. Some of that sprung from the stubbornness of the children of Israel, but some of it sprang from his own sin and frailty as well. If we think of Moses as simply a man living out his vocation, I think it gives a real and poignant picture, not only to this, his life, but to this psalm. Then, in verse 12, the antidote begins to come. And as in so many psalms of lament or hard psalms, there is a turning point. So the reality that's come before in verses 1 through 11 make verse 12 so meaningful. And the turning point is remarkable, though, in its sort of quiet submission to the reality around us. Teach us to number our days. Hardly a rallying cry. (laughs) One writer I read said, the need for human beings is for a mind wise enough to sort out the days with their events, responsibilities, and opportunities so that they can cope with the transience and evil of human life. The antidotes continue in verse 13. We are to seek God's mercy. Verse 14. We are to be satisfied by God's loving kindness, his deep covenant love for his people. Verse 15, we are to be glad for the days God has afflicted us. What does that mean? (laughs) Glad for the days he has afflicted us, as many years as we see evil. So there is a really tough, world-weary optimism to this psalm. Verse 16, it gives joy to recount God's marvelous acts. But the way the psalmist ends, the way Moses ends this psalm, He twice repeats the plea to God that the work of our hands be established. He pleads. Is there any language? I I speak English, of course, and I've learned to read a couple others, but is there any language where repeating something more than once doesn't mean, please do this. I want this. This matters so much to me. Please establish the work of my hands. 
The psalmist wants our work to matter. You wonder if Schmidt, our friend Schmidt, at the beginning of this, uh, did he look back at that stack of files that was being cast out for, for the garbage and say, does my work matter? And notice that the resolution that the psalmist finds is twofold, really. If you look at verses 12 through 17, the psalmist does take comfort in the spiritual, the covenant love of God, verse 14. His mercy, verse 13. Of course, that's, co- that's comforting to him. But the prayer here of the psalmist ends with wanting his work to be established. And the prayer can be coupled well with the other passages that we read. And I think that we as believers can take great comfort in the fact that our work matters to God. So I want us to consider really two things. Two things about it. Two angles based on this psalm and based on the other things we read. One, we are called by God himself to our work and to do it with kindness and humility. As I mentioned earlier, that brings much more focus to how we do our work than what we do for our work. Our work matters. Pastor Christian shared with me a quote that I wanted to include here because it's so great and such a great angle. Dorothy Sayers said, The Christian understanding of work is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but a thing one lives to do. Now, it is important to point out that there are certain works, certain jobs that are not appropriate for members of the kingdom of heaven. Jobs that would essentially be tied to vice and sin are not appropriate for citizens of God's kingdom. Situations that are abusive or toxic should not just be endured with nothing. But, having said that, the broadness of God's call to vocation is actually quite stunning especially as we think about the ways that we frame the issue in our culture. What is my purpose? Where will I find fulfillment? If you ever really want to be encouraged on a day when you've had a tough day at the office or the store or wherever else, Google quotes by Martin Luther, the legendary German reformer and pastor, about vocation. Here's a couple. Every occupation has its own honor before God. Ordinary work is a divine vocation or calling. In our daily work, no matter how important or mundane, we serve God by serving our neighbor, and we also participate in God's ongoing providence for the human race. Not bad. Or, more simply, God himself will milk the cows through him whose vocation that is. Going back to the beginning... And not to the beginning of my sermon, but to the beginning. In Genesis 2, 2, the vocation that God gives humanity is clear. Tend the garden. The fact that God himself gives this task to humans transforms the work. It is only with the fall and all the sad realities and truths that the psalmist in Psalm 90 brings out that the days of our lives become affliction. And difficult. Is it any wonder that the psalmist pleads with God that his work will matter? That it will have some kind of significance when his 70 or 80 years are done? With the seeming simplicity of the first calling God gives, 
Let us remember that our vocations, whether simple or complicated, matter enormously to God. They are one of the many ways his providence is shown on earth. And we should lean on that in days when our work feels frustrating or thorny. The prayer that I started the sermon with, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but it is a prayer from the Compline service in the Book of Common Prayer. And it shows the tenderness and lovingness of what God is accomplishing through our vocation as people work right now on Sunday to do whatever it is that God is providing for us through them. This is also brought about in the Gospel reading. The tax collector is not chastised by John, nor is the soldier chastised for simply being a soldier. There's a way that John says the work should be done. John doesn't tell the tax collector and the soldier, you know what, you're in a bad line of work. You need to leave that and become a pastor or go into the ministry. If there were any vocations that might seem to have had questionable elements to a first century a Jewish person, it would have been a tax collector and a soldier. But John reminds us that these vocations can be used by God by not specifically condemning these jobs. It seems like this would have been a prime opportunity for God, through his prophet, to make a statement about <laughs> these jobs, but he doesn't. And it forces us to broaden our view of vocation. Do you feel like your work matters? It does. It's why you're here. Do it as unto the Lord. Secondly, we are called to honor the work of others as citizens of God's kingdom. Notice something about the end of the psalm. What does the psalmist say? Does he say, establish the work of my hands? No. He says, establish the work of our hands. The cry of the people of God is the understandable desire that our work will matter for all of us. The harsh realities of Psalm 90 and the eventual pleading for our work to matter are nicely complemented by the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. Here we see the quiet kindness that can come from our work as we not only serve the brethren, but also, as he says, the outsiders. And keep in mind, most importantly, I think, God could have done this all himself. He spoke a garden into existence. He doesn't need farmers. He fed his people manna in the wilderness for 40 years. He doesn't need grocers or waiters or food service industry. Jesus is the great high priest and prophet. He doesn't need priests and pastors. Jesus teaches multitudes and argues with the priests with such fervor and intelligence. He doesn't need teachers and lawyers. And Jesus is the great physician. There is no doctor or nurse on earth who can match the knowledge he had of the human body or his bedside manner. He doesn't need doctors or nurses. And doesn't that make it all the more poignant and lovely if he wants us to do it? He calls us all to our work. That calling of God gives inherent dignity to others' work as well. It's part of how we properly live in God's kingdom. 
It's how we are part of God answering the plea of the psalmist to establish the work of our hands. When I was growing up, there was a phrase that was very famous in the Baskin family, and it set me back a ways. (laughs) No fun like work was the phrase. And I think for a lot of years, I actually sort of tried to prove it wrong or something. I don't know. But it made me feel like work was part of the fall. And I realized somewhere along the way that it was wrong. After all, God is a stubborn teacher. He keeps going with us. I've worked as an employee at Trader Joe's for almost 20 years. And before I entered my current vocation here at church, I struggled for years and years to understand the value of my work as a supervisor there. Sure, I took a paycheck home, kept the lights on, the family fed, and that was good. That was my responsibility, as Gene Edward Veith was talking about earlier, as I mentioned. And maybe, it's just maybe, I could share my faith with somebody at work. But one day, I think what God really hooked into me, finally... And true, it wasn't me, it was him. As a grocer, it wasn't about me. It was how God was using my work to feed people. The work I did was extending a welcome to a person who had lost a loved one or had a difficult day. The work I did was God extending his mercy and kindness to those whom I supervised. A couple of weeks ago, I was entering a Dunkin' Donuts, and I saw a sign that speaks to our time, and it really struck me. It read, to our valued guest, the whole world is short-staffed. Please be kind to those who showed up. Thank you. May we remember that the work of our hands is established when we do our work as unto the Lord, and when we honor the vocations that are not our own. Our labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us responsibilities and ways to minister to this hurting world. May no person here think that their job is not a part of that. Amen.